Welcome back to Down the Rabbit Hole. My name is William, and my co-host for today is Roy Rios. Hi, Roy. Hey, William. Thanks for having me today. So today on this episode, we are jumping down the rabbit hole of the fact that racial justice is survivor justice. Uh, we're, we have a special guest that we're going to explore that with. But before we intro her, um, we want to remind everyone, as per every episode with Down the Rabbit Hole, we get into some serious topics sometimes. So on this episode, we will likely be talking about survivorship, which might also include conversations about violence. We're also going to be talking about racial justice, which will include conversations about racism. So if at any point you feel like you need to take a break from the episode, please pause and join us back whenever you're ready. Thanks, William. Thanks for that trigger warning. Um, I am very pleased to introduce um, one of our esteemed colleagues in the field, uh, Ms. Arlene Vassell, who is the Vice President of Programs, Prevention, and Social Change at the National Resource Center on Domestic Violence, also known as NRCDV, has joined us today to have a very important conversation on the intersections of racial justice and survivor justice. Arlene, please tell us a little bit more about yourself and your work. We're so pleased to have you today. Awesome. Thank you so much, William and Roy, for having me today. I'm looking forward to the conversation. And thank you for that brief introduction. Um, in addition to my title at NRCDV, I entered this space as a Black woman, a proud immigrant from Jamaica, a mother, an auntie, a mentor, an advocate, an activist, a storyteller, a thought leader, a joy seeker, a self-proclaimed hope dealer, and a host of other identities. <laughs> and yes, some people would also call me a preventionist because I've been leading prevention initiatives for most of my career um, at, a lo at local levels, state levels, and national levels. That's me, Roy. <laughs> when we think of innovative work uh, in the prevention realm, Arlene, your team, the work that you're leading is always first of mind. And when we think about racial justice, your name and the work that you've been engaging in with NRCDB and your team just completely stood out to us. And we've had the privilege of working with you on a few other <clears throat> conversations and, and trainings. And so we knew that we just had to keep this conversation going, but you know, you mentioned that you're a preventionist and you mentioned that um, you know, you've been working in this prevention realm on so many different levels. Does, do you have a memory that sticks out to you as something that like, just reminds you of how much you love the work? Oh, geez, yes, I have many. <laughs> but before I jump into my fondest memory, I do want to also acknowledge and honor and express gratitude to the hundreds of black and brown survivors, young people, warriors and leaders whose shoulders I stand on and whose voices and lived experiences I also bring into this space. And most importantly, I must also acknowledge the two young people that call me mom and unapologetically and continuously <laughs> hold me accountable and remind me when I am out of my lane. But today they would acknowledge that I am in my lane. <laughs> so survivor justice and racial justice is my lane and that's my purpose for doing this work. So to the, my fondest memories, like I said, I have several. 
Um, and I would say um, working again with black and brown young people to inform um, the Do You campaign um, out of Virginia and also my contributions to the license plates, um, license plate um, that Virginia has, Peace Begins at Home, that generates funding for prevention um, in that state. And then I, at my, one of my other greatest uh, memories um, is our first prevention town hall that we led at NRCDV um, because we were intentional about centering the voices, leadership, of black and brown survivors, advocates, activists, and preventionists. So full circle, um, I have fond memories on a local level at state coalition and then national. So yeah, um, uh, yeah, I, I thought about that question and just the joy of talking with young people and also the joy that comes with centering um, leaders in this movement that typically may not have a platform or a space um, to share their voices and the work, the amazing work that they're doing in community. So yeah, those are some of my fond memories. Wow. Um, you know, and I just want to do a little nod. I really appreciate how you situated your fondest memories on a social ecological model in terms of it being <laughs> on a uh, micro, mesal, and uh, uh, macro level. I appreciate that. And also to your point, I mean, having had the privilege, I think I can see some great memories. William, I feel like you have a really, really great memory. Here. No, I think I think that I, I love that that moment where we can see those core foundation principles of the social ecological model come through, um, even inadvertently. Um, every time I go into like a prevention training, it's like, let's talk about the SEM or let's talk about the river. I'm like, yeah, like we all know these things. Um, um, yeah, one of mine, one of my best memories, um, I actually might have talked about it on the podcast last season, but it's, uh, it is working with young people in schools. Um, so I've been, I haven't been in the school setting in a long time, but there's still some of my fondest memories because young people have such a, um, maybe it's, maybe it's the fact that, that a lot of their, their points of view are like unjaded. And, and so they have such like a hopeful outlook on some things. And, and so it's just inspiring to work with young people um, who can really hope in a way that I think a, a lot of adults sometimes can't um, because, because the world has um, shown them otherwise. Um, but, um, but I think that that was, that was one of, um, Arlene, I, I believe you said you're a hope dealer. Um, yeah. And I have never heard someone describe themselves as that term. And I love that so much. Um, you can use it. You can use it, William. <laughs> you. Um, that, is, that, that is a skill that I will need to practice for sure. Um, because I can certainly not um, uh, sometimes. But, but I think that I will, I will start to work on that because I love that description a lot. And I think that young people often... Um, whether they would would use that term or not um, uh, can be those you just see the, like the light in them yeah. sometimes and and so I think working with young people is some of my fondest memories of and prevention. Roy yeah. what about you? My god oh man you know I think one of the things that you know as I've been thinking about this question this this kind of reflection yeah I'm thinking back to my my time working 
um, in direct service um, at Women's Protective Services in Lubbock, Texas. And during around the holidays is probably when we were the busiest on every level. Um, and really where I saw our community of, of, of social activists in our, in our Lubbock area coming together to support survivors. And it was just, you know, it was long hours, but there was so much like organization and teamwork within the organization, but even externally, uh, you know, people would come out of the woodwork and even people who were ongoing supporters of the organization would just ramp up their support, both monetarily, time-wise donations. And you would just see the community wanting to shift and wanting to create a safer space. And, and that fed me in my work and made me realize, yes, this is where I want to be. This is, this is my life's calling. I want to support this and just be a part of this work. And I think then getting to come to TCFB and see it on a statewide level and work with preventionists from around the state in many spaces where what we're doing is coming together, troubleshooting, thinking of ideas. I mean, those are the times when I'm like, yeah, this is why I do what I do and why I love it. I love it. When I say my purpose, that's exactly what I'm talking about as well. My life's calling. Yeah, I think one of those things is also being able to see how this is a little off topic, but our movement can sometimes be really hard. Um, it can like burnout is real. Um, and so, but prevention, I think sometimes gives you that little bit of a bubble in our movement um, where you get to really like bathe in that hope and like dream for the future um, and, and think about change. Uh, and so I think that that is a really great aspect of, of prevention broadly. Really back to Arlene's hope dealing. Um, because, you know, I think what's underpinning is this is that during the holidays, survivors are navigating some of the most really difficult times and really at any time survivors are navigating these. Um, and so we can be agents of change. And, you know, I think now thinking of in terms of progressing our work to a point where we're really making racial justice the foundation of what we're doing is another element of that hope dealing and really working to create real and lasting change in our communities, which is what we're here to talk about wholeheartedly today. Yeah. So Arlene, when we when we say um, or, or when when you say or when in our in, in our CDB says um, that racial justice is survivor justice, what does that mean? Um, so to start out, um, it's very personal for me, right? And I wanna um, also start out with a quote um, that a dear friend and colleague shared with me um, from a survivor. And I've always carried this quote with me now. Um, and I do also ask your listeners as they ponder that same question of, you know, when we say racial justice is survivor justice, what does that mean? Um, the survivor said, I didn't realize how black I was until I left my home. So in plain language, in a survivor's voice, that's what it means. That's a clear example, right, of what it means. Again, let me repeat. Um, the survivor said, I didn't realize how Black I was until I left my home and leaving my home from an abusive situation. So let me clarify that. So, you know, as we know, um, years of colonization, safe slavery, 
and other forms of structural racism in the United States, includes violence against women and girls. So NRCDV's messaging campaign, No Survivor Justice Without Racial Justice, is an ongoing reminder that gender-based violence is inextricably linked to racism and other forms of violence and oppression. And we, all of us, must be intentionally focused on dismantling these systems and structures that perpetuate violence and oppression. The, um, I would say the impacts of historic and present day injustices, they shape individuals, families, and communities over generations. So we will never be able to end gender-based violence and create safe and thriving communities without addressing structural racism and other forms of oppression. I mean, we're in a time now where we know for sure that zip codes actually can determine someone's quality of life, right? So we're talking about where individuals live, love, age, play, worship. And when we talked about um, fondest memories, one of my distinct memory that reminds me of why I do this work and why I need to do this work, um, we, you know, we were hosting like focus groups and I call them conversations, meaningful conversations with young black and brown individuals. And oftentimes food, right, is a thing um, that will allow young people to, to come to the table rather, right? Whether they trust you or not, if we have good pizza, if we have some good grub, they'll come, right? And what happened was when we talk about zip codes, um, when we talk about doing this work in the, at the intersection, and this is directly connected to our prevention work, again, because we're hosting these listening groups in order to develop a prevention campaign. The local, and this was being hosted in a church, um, and the local pizza would not deliver to that zip code. As we think about our prevention work, as we think about talking to young people, talking to young people who are not valued in their community, talking to young people that this this is their experiences, right? Um, so it goes back for me that people of color, they experience structural racism and other forms of oppression on a daily basis. So how can we begin to address gender-based violence or prevent gender-based violence without acknowledging the ongoing harm that systems continue to perpetuate against marginalized communities that include um, black and brown children, black and brown youth, black and brown people, and individuals that are most marginalized within those communities as well. So again, it goes back to, this is a ongoing call to action, right? It's not a one-off um, to realize that gender-based violence is directly linked and connected to racism. So in order to achieve um, racial justice in order to achieve um, survivor justice, we must also address racial justice. So that's my short answer, William. <laughs> I think that's that. I mean, that's a fantastic answer. I think I think things like that, where you're having programming and and the pizza place won't deliver, um, that that it's so um, exemplifies privilege in a way that that we often don't frame it because. Um, right. I can get pizza delivered to my house. So why would I ever think that I couldn't, right? Like, and so 
Um, it's, it's one of those things that people don't think about those types of um, the way oppression manifests in those ways. Um, and, you know, I think people are kind of aware of like food deserts. Um, I think that that is a relatively common thing that folks talk about. But, but things like this business won't deliver to you. Um, so you can't even get food that way. Um, and how, how that, it just has a, an over, an overall impact on, on how people can live their lives, um, and how survivors, when they're trying to leave, when they're trying to, uh, reestablish themselves, um, how the systems around them limit their choices, um, in ways that aren't, um, always apparent to funders or to even the advocates that serve them um, in a lot of places. And so I think helping really necessitating um, that our domestic violence services reframe and they educate that their advocates um, because I think a lot of the a lot of the responses that we hear are like, well, that's not our lane, mm-hmm. right? Like we, we do domestic violence. We don't do racial. We, we don't want to be political, right? Like that's, that's where the conversation goes a lot now. It's like, this is not, I mean, it is political yeah. because it's, it's people's lives, but it's not political because it's people's lives. Like, I feel like that, that is the same. So, yeah. So, you know, reflecting on that for me, um, cause I hear that as well. I hear it often and we hear it at a national organization from local organizations, from statewide organizations, that scarcity mentality and that, or, right? I can do awareness or prevention, right? And I can't do both. So I think that's one of the things that we're also um, working on with shifting the narrative, providing tools and strategies for, in, for individuals to remove the or and realize that um, together, when we talk about prevention, we talk about awareness, what we're talking about is creating conditions and environments where the most marginalized communities and individuals can thrive and survive, right? So we're talking about environments and conditions where Black individuals, the most marginalized Black individuals can live, like I mentioned before, can live, love, age, grow, worship, play, work, um, free from abuse, violence, and oppression, right? So in plain language, this is how we're helping um, the field and individuals to connect the dots. Um, because if if we're saying um, we're working towards creating safe and thriving communities, I would add to that and say safe and thriving communities for who? And that would be the million dollar question, for who? <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm just, my, my mind is just buzzing right now listening to this conversation and engaging in this conversation. And this week we had our prevention intensive and uh, part of that discussion is we're working with newer uh, preventionists and we're wanting to help bring home the understanding that anti-oppression, anti-racism is a foundation of prevention work, that it is a cornerstone of what we're doing. Because as you shared earlier, these structures are very much so still shaping our present day experiences. They are completely informing the systems that we are all operating in. And specifically because of our focus, survivors are operating in. And Black survivors specifically 
are navigating a very racist system that is still not addressing the needs that that are in, that are put into the the community and so you know that really just speaks to me um because i think part of what we talked about this week was understanding those historical contexts of racism of the various forms of a, of intersecting oppression that people are carrying and really understanding what is at the core of that because that informs our work um, and i think william kind of brought this out around programs and activists and preventionists really making that a part of what is their work and seeing that connection mm-hmm. yeah yeah and I, and I wonder like by saying oh that's not our lane because we only do domestic violence we don't do um, anti-racism work how helping programs to reframe that as like okay but does how does that taking that stance how does that um, then translate to you maintaining the status quo to you contributing to the um the systemic racism that people are are presenting because you're not actively working to to dismantle um that and so and, and and you know we know that that survivors of color particularly black survivors even you know within the domestic violence um system in and of itself um experience services differently mm-hmm. um and so so how i think recognizing uh that racial justice is survivor justice should be a core to your just just your operations as a as a program um, right. because we know that survivors are experiencing programs differently yeah and when you think about who Well, you know, that's one um, point, like you mentioned, William, um, survivors, you know, Black black and brown survivors are experiencing our programs in different ways. Um, And who who are most impacted by the violence um, that we're trying to prevent and end, right? And if we're not centering those voices, then how are we, how are are our strategies and approaches, um, how are they going to be helpful? Right. Um, And I think for me, what I've noticed is there's a fear of loss. If 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 we want to keep it real. (laughs) Right. A lot of the pushback that I've witnessed. Right. Is connected to a fear of loss. And I would say loss of power. Is at the top. (laughs) Right. Because who has been deemed as a leader, the leader will no longer be the leader and will not be the holder of all the power, right? So when we talk about white supremacy practices, we're talking about power hoarding. Um, We're talking about individualism. We're talking about rights to comfort. You know, all of these things that show up and show up as barriers for individuals to make this pivot, this critical pivot that we're all talking about now that's needed. Um, And if over the last 18 months, right, um, people have not recognized how deep-rooted anti-Blackness is in our systems, in our movement, um, then some of those people we may have to leave and move forward without, right? And how do we do that? Because I think that's what 
um, preventionists, some preventionists are struggling with, right? When my personal values um, are not in alignment with the organizational values. And I know what's that when we talk about root causes, I know what those root causes are, right? Because in our prevention work, we talk about root causes. And at the root of what we're talking about is anti-Blackness, is racism. Um, and if we're getting pushed back to address that, then what are we really addressing? If we're not looking at recent events, um, the dual pandemics, um, and when we talk about addressing root causes, there's a conflict because we wanna address root causes. We know what the root causes are, but we're failing to make that pivot, right? So what's happening is the work is no longer meaningful for some people, including preventionists, right? Because of this conflict with values um, that's showing up, yeah. You know, and so, you know, as you were talking earlier and sharing the account of the survivor that shared their realization. That was so powerful. And I think we're often in a space where we need to hear the stories mm -hmm. and lived experiences of individuals. And I've, I've seen so much research that supports how, how powerful that is on so many levels. What are your thoughts around the impact that storytelling can have on furthering this understanding in our movement? Ooh, I think storytelling is a vital tool to achieve the social transformation that we're all wanting to gain. Um, you know, for people that look like me and navigate the world like me, and I entered this space as a Black woman, um, starting out, you know, that was my identity that I started with. Our historical experiences and stories are always with us, right? Um, they shape who we were, they shape who we are, and they shape who we will become. And if we're silencing those stories, then you'll never hear all of that. Um, you like our movement just cannot continue to dismiss our histories and our stories. Um, they build, they allow us to um, share in authentic ways. They help us to um, also show vulnerability. So what we're asking um, through storytelling is for the sharing, right? Of vulnerability, the sharing and the receiving, I should say. And stories help with building trust building meaningful relationship. They're uncensored, they're unscripted, they're truth-telling, right? Um, all of these things that we need because without the stories, um, what are we responding to? Like you mentioned, um, I started with, we're in a prevention space and a prevention um, conversation, but I felt like, felt compelled to bring that survivor's story into this space, right? because that's what happens when you don't have individuals in this space, oftentimes individuals who have privilege, right? To be in a space can bring those stories into the space and bring life, real life <laughs> individuals. So what we're doing with stories, we're humanizing our experiences. We're humanizing our work because oftentimes that's the disconnect as well, right? We don't, we don't hear stories. So we're disconnected from the human side of our work. And I do feel like our prevention work is like head and heart work, 
right? Without the stories, we stay in the head. We don't bring the heart into this space. So I believe that stories help with doing that. Yeah, I think I think stories are, are so important. One of the challenges that, that not only our movement, uh, but the social justice, social change um, movements broadly um, struggle with is, is the like over-professionalization of the movement. And so you kind of discard the story because that, that emotion and that subjectivity is, is not seen as professional, right? Because we want uh, like a white supremacist objective written word is, is what it's about. Like, um, and so we discard stories and emotion often. Um, And I think that that, that our movement uh, is not exempt from that. Um, And I think that has a lot to do with how we choose to align ourselves uh, organizationally, um, systemically, uh, who, again, uh, like you mentioned a little bit earlier, who is in leadership at our organizations, um, and how we uh, create paths or, or don't create paths of leadership in organizations, um, because we value uh, education over experience often. Um, we uh, don't see as many um, people of color, women of color, specifically black women, even more specifically in positions of leadership in organizations, um, certainly in like board service. Uh, so I think that all of that contributes to, to storytelling not being as important as it should be. Um, and really what our like core movement of is like sharing your story so that other survivors know that they're not alone and so that this is not a private like home issue that we often try to make, or we like culturally broadly, not in our movement, um, try to make it, you know, it's a, it's a private issue, so. And I think I would add to that, William, um, when we talk about professionalizing, what we're talking about actually is valuing white norms. You know, that's exactly what we're saying is we're valuing whiteness and we're valuing white norms. Um, and we're still asking individuals to bring their whole selves into a space. And I've done trainings before where um, I would say, I would, you know, I'd be going in to talk about a specific topic. And based on the audience, I would say, I would have to read my entire, right? <laughs> Professional bio in order to be deemed as credible as a black woman. Um, and oftentimes I would go in and I would say, if I came in and said, I'm a black mom, um, you know, I've raised two black children. Um, I have nieces, you know, nephews, um, I've worked with, you know, young people. I'm a hope dealer, right? (laughs) Joy seeker. Would that be enough for you? Would I be deemed credible without my whole laundry list of credentials, right? And that's that's asking people to look at their own internal biases, their own internal work that needs to happen. So all of what we're talking about with organizations and anti-Blackness and our systems um, that are rooted in, in, in all of these practices and behaviors, white supremacy culture that continues to harm um, black and brown people and doesn't prioritize the wellness of black people, right? We also need to look internal and we need to challenge individuals to look at their own internal biases and do their own internal work in order to move the needle 
in the org in their organizations and then let alone move the needle in the movement right so it's steps we have to acknowledge our own stuff <laughs> in order to contribute in a meaningful way in our organizations to shift the needle to shift the narrative to change the culture um, and then in order to gain and see the real transformation that we want to see happening in our movement right so we can't get to the change in our movement until we, we change our organizations and we can't get to the shift in our organizational cultures until we address um, the individual contributions. Yeah, so often we go straight to the systems, which definitely, right? But then we forget and organizations forget about the internal work that needs to happen. And then there's the work that needs to happen with individuals as well. You bring up your your reflection around the power of storytelling, the, the way that these stories allow us to then reflect internally, which is such an important part of being trauma-informed, of, of being a, a survivor active advocate is really understanding what's happening beneath the surface. And I'm wondering what you think, what do you think these stories of BIPOC leaders in the field would be? Um, what are their reflections? that many could share with us that could teach us about how we need to better create space for BIPOC leaders to lead this work, um, which we need so that we can continue to center these things. Um, I'm curious about your thought on that. <laughs> oh, should I talk about my, should I tell you a story about my 30 years <laughs> in this movement? Um, I think what happens, I mean, what I've heard consistently, um, and we have, uh, we, all, we have a Women of Color Coalition Leadership Project at the National Resource Center um, that, you know, we've looked at this issue, we've talked to um, many um, advocates in the movement, um, and what we've really realized, and this is the story of many, um, and I don't, again, speak for all Black um, women in this movement, everybody's journey is different, but for the individuals that I have um, communicated with, um, having the overrepresentation of white women, um, white individuals in leadership positions, right, um, contributes to the ongoing silencing and ongoing systemic erasure of the complex issues um, that influence communities of color, right? So um, not only does it create barriers for leadership or it creates, um, what do you call it? Career balance, you know, barriers for advancement in careers um, for BIPOC um, advocates. It really silences the complex issues of our communities, right? So. As a result of all of that, the, the point of views, the experiences, the perspective of white women um, then ends up being the primary driver, right? That shapes local, state, and national movement agendas. So what we're doing, and like I mentioned earlier, is just erasing and silencing um, the unique needs of our communities without having BIPOC, BIPOC um, representation. Another thing that we've heard um, consistently as well um, is this, this, this sense of leadership, right? Um, the stories that we continue to hear 
um, women of color, people of color, they want to identify what leadership means to them, right? Because there is this um, definition that's not buying for people of color. Um, so then it really doesn't address the unique needs of advocates of color. Um, for example, racial justice, when I think about racial justice, I think about healing, I think about accountability um, as part of that, right? Um, when I think about our communities, I also think about black joy, I think about pride, I think about black love, I think about creativity, I think about resilience, I think about liberation. Um, and without um, BIPOC leadership and BIPOC voices, all of that is dismissed and not acknowledged and honored. Right, our, throughout history, our communities have persevered. And if we're not sharing the stories about our resilience, about our you know, perseverance, our liberation, um, about, like I mentioned, black joy, all of that, then we're dismissing pieces of our culture, pieces of who we are as we, as we embark on this journey um, in this movement. So, Hopefully that answered your question, Roy. <laughs> Definitely. Thank you so much for that reflection, Marlene. That's a part of my story, part of my journey in this movement. Yeah, thank you for sharing. I feel like we've covered so much ground. I don't feel like it's been that long, but it also maybe has. I don't know. Time is sometimes hard, but... Um, <laughs> you know, the, one of the, the last, I think, phrase that you used was, uh, as we embark on this journey, um, and so I wanted to ask, like, what are some action steps? What are some calls to action uh, that you might have for folks who are really looking to delve into this, um, whether on an organizational level or on a personal level? What are things that folks can do to embark on this journey? Well, William, I'm so glad you asked that. <laughs> and I'm going back to one of your comments earlier when you, I think you mentioned burnout and burnout is real, right? So that would be my first thing, create space for rest, capital R-E-S-T, <laughs> create space for rest. Another, um, another call to action that I've been putting out and I'll continue to put out is be the work and not just do the work, right? So again, it goes back to the internal work that needs to happen. Um, commit to dismantling white supremacy, right? White supremacy is embedded in our culture, in our organization. So a clear commitment, a bold commitment to dismantle white supremacy. Intentionally engage survivors, advocates, and communities of color in our intervention and prevention efforts from development to implementation. Prioritize black women who are most marginalized Amplify and center the voices, leadership, and lived experiences of Black women. Healing and reconciliation, consider that. Have conversations with Black individuals, Black communities, marginalized communities. What does that look and feel like for them? We're not defining that for them. Um, breaking down the silos um, between intervention and prevention, I think is important, and getting rid of the scarcity mentality, the or. Invest in meaningful relationships and partnerships. Get out of the usual sandboxes. <laughs> Go to some other tables. Um, commit resources for individuals to create their own tables, Black women especially. 
Um, and as US Representative Ayanna Presley has said, those closest to the pain should be closest to the power. And as June Jordan further said, Black women have always invented the power that our freedom requires. So yes, we must center um, and prioritize Black women who are most marginalized. I love that. Those closest to the pain must be closest to the power. Such an, an iconic quote from Ayanna Presley. Thank yes. you so much for sharing that. You're welcome. The one maybe surprise question as we wrap down uh, and close. Um, you had to pick uh, one hope or dream uh, that you want to leave with the people um, listening to this episode. What would it be? Woo. So we started out with what is racial justice? Is survivor justice mean to you? Right. We started out with that question for us. I would also pose that question to your listening audience. What does racial justice is survivor justice mean to you? Right. And for me, survivor justice is racial justice. And racial justice is truth telling, healing, and accountability. This has been a fantastic conversation. And I hope that we continue um, in other spaces, um, uh, us here in this space to, to connect and maintain uh, the conversation. But I hope that we are, as a movement, as, a, as TCFE, the organization, um, as the individual advocates at TCFE, able to, to to do just that, to, to ask ourselves that question and reflect personally and then collectively. Um, and then how do we help our member programs move forward and have them, uh, you know, assist them in having those same reflections. Um, it's about to be the day this, this um, uh, episode is going to be uh, published is Thanksgiving, um, which has a lot of, um, racial history. Uh, it's a day of mourning for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. um, and I think regardless of how you see Thanksgiving, it is a day of conversation often, um, mm -hmm. a day of connection. Um, and, and I hope that people take that question into their, into their space um, and, and let it lead some of their conversations and see, see where they stand, see with their families and friends and, and neighbors. Um, what responses they might have to that question. So thank you, Arlene. Great idea. I love that. And you know, the conversation should be difficult in many, in many spaces. And it should be, um, you know, it, it, it's gonna have a variety of, of, of ways that that conversation evolves, but we need to be engaging in it. That's the whole point. And I hope that people feel, continue to feel emboldened because I think the things you share today, Arlene, are things that we're hearing our community say over and over again. These voices need to be uplifted and we need to listen and heed these suggestions because these are real and these are, are um, evidence-based as we love in prevention. So um, thank you so much, Arlene. Um, this has been, Mike Williams said, a wonderful conversation. You're welcome. Yes, I enjoyed it as well. And Arlene, um, we will put some links in the episode description, but um, where can the people find um, more information on, on this work? 
Oh, definitely. Um, um, at nrcdv.org, um, when you go to our website, you can access our Domestic Violence Awareness Project, and you can also access our prevention um, website. And both websites uh, make the connection with our messaging campaign um, that can provide um, tools, strategies, and how are people doing this on the ground now? Um, for individuals who wanna really go beyond conversations and embark on this journey with us um, to really achieve um, racial justice and survivor justice. There's also a letter <laughs> that I've written to white women in the movement and that we'll send that information out as well. That really talks about my story and the stories of individuals that look like me and navigate the world like me over the last 20, 25 years and what that is doing is also um, after the last 18 months um, that we've all um, experienced these multiple pandemics that we're, we don't go back into a mind frame of back to business because we really can't with a good heart unlearn what we've learned and continue to do our prevention and our intervention work the same way. Absolutely. Um... I think that's a great place to leave this conversation for now. Um, we will certainly make those resources available, like I said, in the episode description. And if anybody wants to reach out to us um, to, to get connected to NRCDV, um, you can email us at prevention at tcfe.org, which was also, will also be in the position in the episode description. Ooh, just loosen it all together right here at the end. Um, <laughs> But Arlene, again, thank you so much for, for being here and for all the work that you do um, and for your leadership um, and for the term hope dealing. That one's for you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you all so much. Great. Uh, and we will see y'all back in a couple weeks. Um, hope everybody has a safe holiday weekend. All right. Bye. Bye.